Hermie that, that walks in perfect form. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, like maybe at a memorial service when they have, you know, people that are walking and doing everything, or whether it's just, you know, maybe a group of people that's walking, doing some kind of a presentation, but everyone is in step. Uh, it's every movement is carefully calculated. You can tell that they've planned it and they've rehearsed it over and over again. And you can tell it probably takes the work of some amazing leadership and somebody that knows how to lead well. But for me, there's one, one thing that they do as an army together that just has always resonated with me because it relates so much to our Christian faith. And that is when all of them are, you know, marching in one direction and all of a sudden, the person in charge says about face, and they all turn at the same time and start walking in the other direction. And the thing about this idea for me of, of why it's always stuck in my mind is because that's what we're called to as Christians. When it really comes down to what God calls us to, it's this idea of repentance. And there's no other picture in my mind that resonates so clearly with what repentance is other than that we were moving in one direction, living a life for ourselves, living a life for our ways, and then all the way, our pleasures, and then all of a sudden, we decided to pivot, go completely in the other direction. And this idea of repentance in the Old Testament is this, this word shuv, or it's repent in the Hebrew, and it means to turn back or to return to. And this word occurs some, I think, a thousand times in the Old Testament. And a more, a more widely view or worldly view of this word repent would be turning away from evil and turning to good. That would be more of a worldly view, right? We're going to turn away from evil. We're going to turn to good. Uh, but a more biblical and a more Jewish definition of this, of this word refers to turning to or returning to God as the means by which we turn away from evil. We're not just turning away from evil. We're not just turning away, you know, to good. But we're turning to God as the means by which we turn away from this evil. And the biblical definition of this, of this word has always referred to returning to God ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, tr true repentance or turning to or returning to God, it starts with a change of heart. We see that in the great commandment. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It comes to accepting Jesus into our life. And then it moves, re true repentance then moves and leads us to a change of mind or to a change of thinking, which in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then true repentance should ultimately find its fulfillment in a change of how we live and how we behave. And you see that all throughout the Pauline epistles. 
the Apostle Paul, in all of his letters, talks to the Christian believers about how we're supposed to live differently, how we're supposed to live upright before God, how we're supposed to live holy lives, blameless lives, lives that reflect God and his glory to the rest of the world. True and full repentance leads to a transformed life. Now, repentance also includes expressing regret or remorse for our wrongdoing. This is, this is repentance in its true and full form. But here's what happened, is that along came the Greek understanding of repentance after Hebrew was no longer the common language. So Hebrew was the common language, and then eventually Greek became the new common language. And in the Greek view of repentance, it more focuses on this change of thinking this change of our mind, rather than the Hebrew view of repentance, which focuses on returning to God and a change of heart and a change of action, a change of behavior. And this, this is what, what stuck out to me, and that many times in our evangelical Christianity today, we, we miss out on. Um, that, that a lot of times in the evang- evangelical church today, because we were kind of brought up in this Greek thinking. It's more common to us than the Hebrew thinking. We, we get this, this change of mind, and we give our mind to God, right? We understand I need to come to know Jesus. I need to believe in him. Um, but it never fully leads to that really, that change of heart, and then that change in how we live our everyday lives. And there's There's also many times maybe no regret or very little regret or little remorse that goes along with our actions, our wrong actions that are committed. And the the 21st century uh, has many Christians living it that have made a decision basically for spiritual life or fire insurance, but uh, not so much for a fully surrendered life to Jesus. Uh, it's more of a maybe a, a me-centered, you know, relationship with God. Then, and that's that's kind of what's reflected in our culture, and it's kind of even bred its way into the church today. More of this me-centered Christianity, which leads to consumerism, materialism, having everything that we want when we want it, not denying ourselves of e- of anything that we want. And many Christians. We, we make our decisions based on what will make us happy and making sure that we're satisfied. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, like, th- these are more macro trends that I'm talking about. I'm looking at the church at large. I'm looking at the church of the United States, possibly in, in a lot of these areas that I'm going to point out really quickly. Um, just things around the world that would define the, the church of the world today. But when we... When we go into a repentance that's more of a repentance in our mind, but it doesn't really get down into changing our heart and changing our actions and changing our behavior, it ends up coming out in some different me-centered ways. And it's not that we mean to, but this is kind of, some of these examples are things that begin to happen. When this me-centered life many times leads to things such as things like 
maybe an anonymous complaint card on a Sunday morning about things that need to be better, right? Because after all, church is, it's about us, right? If it's a me-centered thinking of, of what, how we live the Christian life, then that can be one of the things that happens. It can also be church, church transfer growth, okay? We, it's not necessarily that we're seeing new Christians and new people coming to know Christ at our churches, but we're actually seeing people who are just going to other churches because they're unhappy or their needs aren't being met. And so sometimes this me-centered Christianity can show itself in that way. It can also be things like not enough volunteers serving in the body of Christ because after all, you know, we're here to be fed rather than to serve and to help feed and pour into others. Or it can turn into things like this me-centered Christianity, right? Maybe spending all of our money and all of our time and all of our possessions on things like our vacations or our toys or our cars or the things that we have rather than giving our first fruits to God and to the tithe, even though God's the one that gave all of that to us to begin with. Uh, it can lead to things like the younger generation being in some, in many churches, non-existent or a very small number, a very small number in that, those churches, because maybe the church doesn't meet their needs or because they were maybe hurt by the church or somebody in the church and it's, it's a tough thing that we have to wrestle with there. But also things like sexual sin, being on a huge upward swing ever since the smartphone came out, even among born-again Christians. So with this larger macro sense of a change of thinking, but not maybe a true change of heart and a, a behavior and a life change, not only is that going on today, this is exactly what the Israelites were also struggling with some 2,400 years ago. Israel was, in essence, turning away from God, not returning to God or repenting, but living life as the enemy nations around them were living. They thought that they were believers, but in their heart and actions, they didn't back it up. Therefore, we're going to see this morning that God gives them a chance to repent, to return to him. And we're in a series this summer called Voices from the Past, Minor Prophets with a Modern Message. And this morning, today, we find ourselves in our final minor prophet. It's hard to believe that we've made it to the end of the summer uh, there's actually, there's very little known about this final prophet other than that he was the first Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> Not really. Uh, his name is Malachi, and I had to use that one. Uh, Pastor Steve said it to me, and I was like, I am stealing that. That's awesome. Uh, but we don't know much about this last minor prophet's life or about who he was other than that in Hebrew his name means my messenger but that's all we really know about him Malachi was the last Old, Tef Old Testament prophet to be written and even though no date or no time is really given in his letter in his 
his book of the Bible for when it w- it's written. It's most likely written around the time of Ezra, around the time of Nehemiah, which, would, which are thought to have been written in about 440 or 430 B.C. And this would have been about 80 years later than last week when we were talking about Zechariah, right? The Israelites last week had just gotten back from exile, right? Remember, they, they had turned away from God. God gave them many chances to return to him. But because of that, he said, okay, you're not returning. You're going to go to exile. An enemy nation's going to overtake you. They were there for 70 years in exile. They finally come back last week. They retake the land. They rebuild the temple. But remember, they actually got off. They strayed a little bit. And that's why Zechariah and some of these other guys had to write to them and bring them back and say, rebuild the temple, get on it. They did. They came back. But now we're going to zoom forward about 80 more years. And that's where we're at this morning. And there's two interesting connections that I made this week in my study on the background of this book that I want to share with you real quick. Number one is that one of the strongest reasons for dating Malachi around the dates of Ezra and Nehemiah has to do with the fact that these three authors have very similar tones and and all talk about these same issues of intermarriage and divorce, which they all wrote about, meaning that they all probably wrote about the same time and to this issue that was happening among God's chosen people. Ezra refers to the, you can see these in your, your one-page handout, so don't feel like you've got to write them all down. But uh, <clears throat> Ezra refers to these issues of intermarriage and, and divorce in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. Nehemiah refers to them in chapter 13. And Malachi refers to them in chapter 2. So we also know that, here's the deal, in order for these men to have married non-Jewish woman of the nations around them, they first would have had to have divorced their wives, their Jewish wives that they were married to. And what is, what's also worthy of mention, though, because it relates to Malachi chapter 2, which we're going to be talking about this morning, is in Ezra chapter 9, verse 2. We also see that the leaders in the official, and the officials of that day were actually taking the lead in this unfaithfulness of intermarriage and of being unfaithful in in marriage and divorce. So that's the first thing that I found interesting. Uh, The second thing that I found interesting about all this background and everything that was going on is that, and I can't believe that I didn't put this one together when I was like going through my undergrad and grad studies um, at school, but I didn't realize that the temple was rebuilt before the walls were rebuilt. I don't know why I thought this, but I guess I thought that the walls were rebuilt and then the temple was rebuilt, but it's actually the reverse. The temple was rebuilt last week during Zechariah's time. Now fast forward 80 years to where we are now, and it's around this time when Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi are being written that the walls finally got completed which was like mind-boggling to me uh, as because as, as I shared last week, the, the temple got finished in 516 BC and now we're reading in about 444 BC that the walls were rebuilt 
and these other books are being written. And that was just, that kind of blew my mind. Um, that when he's talking, when Malachi is talking about them coming to the temple, them, as we're going to read this morning, making sacrifices that are defiled or that are diseased, that it had to have made sense that the temple had already been rebuilt. And they were already being able to practice these sacrifices. And so some time had taken place since the temple had been rebuilt. And now we're starting to see what we're going to see this morning is the Israelites starting to change course again and move away from God. You would have thought that they got it from exile and the fact that God told them to repent. They didn't. They went into exile. They came back. Now they're already moving 80 years in this direction again of needing to repent and follow and worship God's laws. So this is just some interesting trivia for you of things that came to my mind as I was looking into the historical and the cultural background of Malachi. But in order for us to see why they needed to repent, why specifically they needed to return to God, let's open up to Malachi chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1, and we're going to learn a little bit more about what was going on in Malachi's time. So in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, it says, A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So just to kind of let you know what's going on here. Malachi is expressing to the Jews on behalf of the Lord, no, 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 I do love you. They're asking him, how have you loved us? And he's saying, I, I do love you. Do you not realize that the inheritance was supposed to go to Esau? He was the older brother. He was the one that should have gotten the inheritance. He was the one that, that the tribes of Israel should have came through. But instead, God's saying, no, but I gave the covenant promise to his son, to, to Jacob, which is who your line came through. I do love you. I do have this covenant with you. Things would have been very different if Esau's line would have been the line that the Israelites came from. But God reminds them that he loves them and that he chose them a very good thing for us to remember because he's going to say a lot of things that they were doing wrong but how amazing is it for us to realize that maybe when we go to share with people things that they've done wrong first to share with them how much we love them it's a very good thing to remember but in malachi chapter six we're going to get into the first reason why israel needed to repent says in verse 6, it says, a son honors his father. Yeah, a son honors their father. That's what 
son should do. So that makes sense. And a slave, his master. Also makes sense. And if I am a father, where is the honor due me? Uh, if I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you say, how have we shown contempt for your name? Now, a simple truth back then, nobody would have questioned it. A son honored a father. So maybe unlike today in the United States, um, when somebody does something wrong and it's only, you know, only that person is shamed. Back then in the, in the Old Testament, they, leave, they lived in an honor-shame society. And so if you did something wrong, if you did something shameful, it didn't just come back as bad upon you. It came back as bad upon your family and how they were seen from that time forward. And so a lot of people back then thought a lot more hard about things that they did, even bad things that they did, before they did them, even if at all, because of this honor-shame society. He's pointing out, I mean, of course a son is going to honor their father. He goes on, he says, in the same way, uh, a master would be given respect too, no question. But God's question then is, why do you priests show contempt for my name? This kind of goes to show you how far Israel and its leadership had wandered from God. Not only had the people done things that were bad, but also the priests, God's chosen people and the leaders of Israel had too. Israel wanted to know how they had shown contempt. And contempt is feeling someone is beneath consideration worthless or deserving scorn so they want to know how have we shown contempt verse 7 of chapter 1 says how have we shown contempt by offering defiled food on my altar but you ask how have we defiled you by saying that the lord's table is contemptible when you offer blind animals for sacrifice is that not wrong when you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, plead with God to be gracious to us. With, with, which, with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Well, is the governor going to accept these offerings? Oh, that, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be greater among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane my name by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you, you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So what we see here for why they would need to repent was that they were uh, had de- defiled the altar by bringing blind, diseased, crippled animals for sacrifice to the Lord's temple. Malachi speaks on behalf of God, try bringing this kind of sacrifice to your governor. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even have it. Like that wouldn't, you, you just wouldn't do that. It wouldn't have been acceptable. And not just that they had done this, made these un, you know, unacceptable sacrifices, because we also know in the Bible that if you didn't have the ability to bring uh, a better sacrifice or um, you know, be able to purchase a sacrifice of uh, maybe that magnitude, that you could purchase, purchase lesser sacrifices. Even the people who were poor could have brought pigeons or doves to the Lord and sacrificed those, and they would have been accepted. So it's not so much that they didn't offer the better or the best sacrifice that God was mad about. It's the fact that I mean, because they could have brought doves, right? They could have brought a sacrifice that could have met their needs, okay? So that's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at, and we read it, I think it was in verse, I think it was verse 14, um, is that they said that they had the means to do it. They even vowed to do it, and then they didn't follow through. And on top of that, the priests accepted those sacrifices, and it seemed to be their regular practice. So therefore, God says, it, hear this. Therefore, God says, it would be better for you to close the temple doors. That is huge. Like, take that in. The, like, the only place that they can go to have their sins forgiven, to be atoned for, right, for things to be made right in their life, is the temple and is through those priests. And God is saying, I would rather you shut the doors and not offer these sacrifices for people's sin and wrongdoing. Kind of crazy to think about where they were at. But we know that God is a great king, it says in these verses. He's greater than a father, greater than a slave master, greater than a governor. And they should have been approaching him with reverence and awe and respect more than anyone else. And they were not. So this is kind of some of the backstory of what's going on. Now, we're not going to have time to get all the way into uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, but I'll briefly paraphrase it for you. It says, he's basically saying, if you do not listen, I will send a curse on you and your descendants. Okay, so he's, he's telling them what's going to happen if they, if they don't follow through um, and repent. He says, because the, the priest is meant to be a messenger for God and a place where people can go to seek instruction, because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you accountable. Okay? We, need to, we need to change things around. I'm just paraphrasing here. But then in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, is the second reason for why they needed to return to God and why they needed to repent. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, Do we not all have one Father? 
Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tent of Jacob, even though he, off, he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. With an, another thing you, you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because, because he no longer looks on favor uh, with favor on your offerings and accepts them, he no longer accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Is it because the Lord is the, uh, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does one God, one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful with the wife of your youth. The man, the man who, hates, who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should, res- he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful. And he goes on. So at this point, Malachi, on, the, on, the ha- on behalf of God, brings attention to the fact that the people of God, the people of Judah, were now back in Jerusalem, Jerusalem after exile, worshiping God in this newly built temple. And they're back there again. And they were desecrating or treating with violent disrespect the Lord by worshiping the other gods and the other nations around them and by also then bringing sacrifices to God. So not only were they going and worshiping these other nations around them and being disobedient to their covenant with God, their marriage relationship with God. But then, so not only are they doing that, but then they're also bringing sacrifices to God at the same time. And then on top of that, chapter 2, verse 13, they were also crying out to the Lord's altar, altar asking why the Lord no longer hears their prayers or accepts their, their offerings. Now, God gives an example to them of returning to their gods, breaking faith with God, right? The as I already said, the wife of their marriage covenant. But what Malachi was also making reference to, that Ezra and Nehemiah also make reference to, is that they thought they could go and marry a woman from other faiths. And in in doing this, it broke God's heart. Um, They were breaking away from God and not only hurting God, but they were actually hurting those, those other people in their lives, their family right? They were divorcing their wives so that, that, that they could then go and marry people, women of other faiths. And many of them were still trying to make sacrifices to God. They were living two lives. They were being two-faced. I mean, we can relate to this. Living one way in our daily lives and another way on Sunday or when we're at church. Now, all of these things that we're reading about and hearing about, as, as well as the things, if we were to turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, it also gives us there a list of things that they were doing that were wrong. It points out in chapter 3, verse 5, things that they need to repent of, like 
like sorcery, which was witchcraft, or adultery, which was cheating on your spouse, or perjurers, which is basically just swearing under oath to what, is, what was untrue. They were saying it was true under oath, but it was really untrue. Or they were swearing to do something under oath and then not doing it, not following through with it. That's, that's perjury. Or they were de- they, it also says they were defrauding laborers of their wages. So basically they were either paying them uh, less than they should have been paying them or they weren't paying them at all. And also says those who possess uh, oppress those who they were oppressing the fatherless and the widows. And last but not least, they were p- depriving the aliens or the foreigners of the land from justice. And then let's not forget chapter three, verses eight through 13. Um, I'll just, I'll read it for us really quickly because it's just, it's so a part of all of this. It says, um, it says, but you ask, how are we robbing you? Because he's saying, you're robbing me. And, and so they're asking, how are we robbing you? This is chapter 3, verse 8. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it goes on and talks about that but he's he's talking about how they had been robbing the lord and i don't know about you but robbery is not a good thing um if you if you rob somebody it can actually be a capital punishment or a capital offense if if caught and they had taken the tithes and offerings that were due to god and so all of these reasons that we've been reading about so far is why in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, the Lord calls the people to repent, to turn to him, to return to him so that he could continue to bless them. It says in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And he says it, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying, just like I've given you grace upon grace, chance upon chance, time and time again, I I have allowed you to return to me. I will do it again. If you'll, if you'll return to me and, to re- and repent, come back to me. You know, we, we do a really good job today in the church um, talking about how the Lord wants, us, wants to forgive us of our sin and, and, and give us eternal life. But a lot of times uh, we don't m- maybe necessarily do as good a, a job of thinking about and processing through how we need, we, need, we need to repent of those things and we need to feel, feel bad about those things or we need to say we're sorry for those wrongs that we're doing. We need it to go from more than just our minds and actually into changing our heart and changing the way that we live, changing the way that we behave, striving to live for God with right behavior and right living. But it starts with returning to him. 
even the followers of God in Malachi's day, they weren't perfect, okay? None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. We all mess up. Uh, we, we all don't always follow God wholeheartedly. But God, he still asks us, and he still asks them to return to him, to come back to him, to ask him for forgiveness, and that he would accept them. And he is giving us the same invitation today. But the reason that it's hard to do this in Christian circles today is because usually forgiveness requires letting other people know that we're making that decision and letting them help you walk this relationship with God and live this life that God wants us to live. But what's hard is that our culture has also told us that we have to keep it all together and we have to keep on our poker face all the time. Okay, have you ever played po poker? Okay, of course, now I'm not approving poker from the pulpit. Don't hear me this morning. I'm not approving poker from the pulpit. I'm just using the term poker face as an illustration to make a point. Because think about this. If you've ever played poker before, you have to keep a poker face. You've got people, people need to think that you have something, even if you don't have it. Because otherwise, they're going to bet bigger on you. But if you can have the bigger poker face, and if you can make them think that you have something, even if you don't, then you're going to win. That's how the, the people who are professionals win big. I mean, you can't have something good in every single hand. It's impossible. But if you can make people think that you do, then your, your opponents are going to fold. You're going to win. But the sad thing is that we have carried this poker face mentality into the church and into Christianity. And for some reason, nobody wants to be vulnerable with anyone because we want to look like we have it all together and that we have the winning hand, the winning life. We don't want to show any form of weakness. We don't want anyone to see that we don't really have it all together, that we, we are sinning or that we are struggling or that we are suffering with addiction or questioning our faith maybe or dealing with depression, or fill in the blank. And so we put up our, our poker face, and we instead pretend like everything is great, and like we have it all together, and like we have the perfect life, and that we're winning. And don't get me wrong, many of us actually have very good reasons for not letting people in, myself included. Okay, we've been hurt, or people have broken our trust, or people have broken our confidentiality. And we don't know who's safe. I get that. But instead of letting maybe in a, a small few that can help us, many times we, we put on our poker face, we don't let anyone in. We aren't transparent. We aren't vulnerable. We aren't real with others. We're, we're not honest or, or open with others. And it, this many times leads to a church culture where no one is being transformed, maybe, or, or fewer being transformed, and, and maybe no one's fully repenting or feeling safe to share their sin and wrongdoing in the one place where it should be the safest to share those sins and those wrongdoings, receiving grace and love to help us in our time of need. Maybe you've been holding 
it in for quite some time, pretending like it's okay. But this morning, you just need to come forward, maybe. You just need to talk to somebody and let them know, I don't have it all together, or I'm struggling, or I've got this sin that I'm wrestling with that I need help with. I just, I can't do it alone anymore. And this is what Jesus offered to each and every person that he came in contact with. Help. He offered them help. We, we were never meant to live the Christian life alone. Do you know that? We were never meant to live the Christian life alone. And this is why Jesus came down out of heaven, down to earth, lived among us, God with us. Because we were never meant to do this life alone. And then he died on the cross for our sin. It's amazing what Jesus did for us. We were never meant to partake in things that would lead us to pain, that would lead us to brokenness, shame, guilt, all those things. But it happens. We're not perfect. We live in a fallen world. I want to invite the worship team this morning. God's plea for us this morning is to return to him this morning. To keep returning to him. Because it's never a one-time deal. Will you return to him? If, if he's tugging at your heart to do so this morning, whether you've been a Christian for decades, maybe he's calling you to return to him in some way. Or whether you're turning to him for the very first time, saying, Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. If you're joining us in house this morning, you can come forward maybe during one of these next songs. If you just need to talk to somebody or just need somebody to pray for you, I'll be down here. Um, if, you're, if you're watching us via live stream, please feel free to look us up on our main page at gracepointfamily.com. Leave us uh, the online connection card. Let us know of what's going on in your life, and we will reach out to you and we'll connect with you this week. But repentance is not just about a change of mind. True repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of behavior. It's a change of how we live our life. We need to be sorry for what we've done and feel bad in some, some ways sometimes about the things that we've done. But we also need to know that we have a loving God. We have Jesus who is waiting there for us with arms wide open saying, I love you. Come to me. Return to me. I will forgive you crazy about you. I just want to be in relationship with you. So if you need that this morning, I just encourage you to return to him. Take these next couple songs and return to him. He loves you so much.